0: This morning we're doing things a little different Uh, not only because because of the procession outside and the way we enter the church which is not the usual thing but on Palm Sunday I always think that the reading of the gospel best fits at the end of the service so that's why you're noticing a little difference from what you normally see. Today, we say it's Palm Sunday, but in fact, we wear red liturgically, and you can see everything that we have is red, because it is the color of blood, and it is the color of martyrdom. And so, today is one of those strange days when we come in into the church, Uh, singing and rejoicing and praising God and waving palm branches and remembering Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem. But we're not going to exit the same way. Uh, We are going to, I I think in a way, the lights begin to be turned off. Because we are with Palm Sunday, and as we conclude Palm Sunday... We begin Holy Week, which end up on Friday with the remembrance of the death of Jesus. So it almost seems that as as the service concludes today, you will notice very strongly the changing mood, because it's intentional that you will experience how we're going from celebration and so quickly, the story of Jesus turns south and ends up in, in crucifixion. But it doesn't end there. It goes back on Easter Sunday. But today's one of those strange days because we begin celebrative and it won't end very celebrative. And so for preachers sometimes in our liturgical tradition, we have to decide whether we're going to preach on the celebration or we're going to preach on the passion. But since we are going to have opportunities during the week to experience the passion of Jesus, and in fact, on Good Friday, we are preparing an amazing service for for all of us to come to the cross. Today, I want to share with you a little bit about the entrance of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. So I want today to deal with this word that is written in our banners, and we sang this word that we call Hosanna. And we come in, you know, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king is coming. I want you to imagine with me I want you to imagine with me uh, what the city of Jerusalem might, might look like on a day like Palm Sunday. Just use your imagination and use your ability to kind of see what may have happened at the entrance of Jesus. The Passover, the great feast of Israel, or one of the great feasts of Israel, the Passover is going to begin just a few days from now. The entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem took place on a Sunday, on the first day of the week. And the Passover would begin just a few days later, On Friday at 6 p.m., the Jewish families began their Passover observance. And the Passover would end on Saturday after 6 p.m. So it would go from Friday at 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m. And then you enter, uh, or you, you are celebrating as well, the seven days of unleavened bread. Which is another feast, the last seven days um, in the Jewish way of observance. The Passover is one of the major feasts of Israel. There were three feasts in particular where every male was commanded to come to Jerusalem to worship God and offer sacrifices. One was Passover, the other one was Pentecost, and the other great feast is called Sukkoth, which is the day of tabernacles. All of them making sure that they remembered how God had been with them throughout their journey. On the day of Passover... The celebration was a remembrance of how God had defended them against the Egyptians and how he had delivered them from Egyptian captivity. It was busy, probably one of the busiest weeks in the life of Israel. Not only was it busy internally because of all that you were coming to celebrate and all the preparation, but it was extremely busy for the family. A lamb had to be chosen 14 days earlier. Killed on Friday, sometimes around 3 p.m., just before Passover. All the preparation, all the cleaning of the house, the women, the children cleaning, getting rid of all the leaven, the husband eventually coming in and looking for leaven and eventually finding a little leaven that was left on purpose and then he cleans it up and he declares the house is clean. All of this is been keeping these families extremely busy. Now imagine on top of that, that because of all the Jews that were traveling from all over the world, those that could come, those that could travel, those that were not too elderly or sick, every male over the age of 12 had to come to Jerusalem. So imagine all these family members coming into your house. People coming and asking you for a place to stay during the seven day of feasting. Imagine how busy the family was. Imagine how busy it was. Imagine the numbers of people in the city of Jerusalem. More than ever before, the place was buzzing. The place was busy. The lambs were being slaughtered. slaughtered. Everything was being prepared. Those that did not have a place to stay were probably pitching a tent somewhere. Remember how Mary and Joseph had come down and they had not found a place in the inn and they ended up staying in a cave with animals. People were staying wherever they could stay. The place was a busy place. And Rome was at its highest in attention just in case any of these Jewish rebels would decide to attack. Legions were all over the city, armed, completely armed and ready for battle just in case an uprising took place with all this multitude of people coming from all over. It was a heightened state of celebration and a heightened state of alert and a heightened state of emotionally. Imagine with me what it might have looked like in the city of Jerusalem. There were two ways into the city of Jerusalem. There were two ways, there were two major roads that connected the world to this little piece of land we call Israel you can see in the map here on the left hand side toward the Mediterranean Sea marked in red you see this line coming down that is what's called the Via Maris or the road by the sea if you wanted to connect Rome, Italy Turkey, all those areas in the north, all the way down with Egypt, you might want to come down the Via Maris. And I guarantee you all these roads were filled with pilgrims. The other major road that would lead into Jerusalem is over on the east side That's marking where the Via Maris is. And then on the east side you see another road coming down and that is called the King's Highway. The King's Highway comes just to the east of the Jordan River. And that is most likely the road that Jesus took to come into Jerusalem. He went to the east of the Jordan River, and he crosses from the from a particular point there, probably just south there, where it says Perea. He crosses the city of Jericho, and that is where he heals Bartimaeus, the blind man, the son of of Timaeus. And as he continues down the road, he comes to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Lazarus has been dead for three days. And that is where he does the miracle of resurrecting Lazarus, leaving everybody in awe. And that is where Jesus, just outside the city of Bethany, he tells his disciples to go to a particular house, that they're going to find a donkey, they're going to find uh, an ass, and that they are to ask and untie this donkey and bring it to Jesus because he plans to use it. And so the disciples go, they find the donkey, they bring uh, the donkey back to Jesus, and Jesus gets on the donkey and begins to journey from from Jericho. you can see there Jericho all the way down toward the city of Jerusalem as he goes past Bethany is where we what we call the the Garden of Gethsemane, or the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is one of the highest peaks on this side. And as you look across, what you see is the temple. The mount where the temple has been built. But from the Mount of Olives, there is a descent into what's called the Valley of Kidron. And then you ascend in order to get to Mount Zion or the mount of the temple. So you go down from, from the Mount of Olives... Through the Kidron Valley, Jesus is riding on a donkey. The disciples are waving palm branches. The disciples are laying their clothes and their garments on the way, proclaiming him king. And everyone who got involved with the resurrection of Lazarus is coming along, and there is excitement about this thing. And as they start coming up all these other pilgrims that are going through this journey, through uh, these roads to get to Jerusalem, they get caught up with the procession of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, in the Psalms, in the book of Psalms, there are some Psalms that are called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel Psalms. These psalms are, Hallel means to praise, is where we get the word Hallelujah. It's praise. Okay? But these psalms are also known as the psalms of ascension. The psalms that they would be singing as they begin to enter and ascend into the temple. So they have their tambourines and they're using their palms and they have string instruments and whatever they can use and palm branches and they begin to sing the Psalms of Ascension into the house of the Lord. The Psalms of Ascension are Psalm 113 to 118. 113 through 18 is what's known as the Hallel. And they are singing the Hallel as they ascend into the presence of God, into the temple of God, to celebrate the Lord. And that is partly what is happening as Jesus is processing up to the temple. There is music. There is instruments. There is palm branches. There is proclamation, there is emotion. But I, I think there is there is a sense in which not only are they remembering when God delivered them from Egypt, there is an expectation that maybe God will deliver them again of Rome. There is a hope, there is a prayer in the heart of this Jewish people that perhaps this is the year in which the slavery of Rome, the oppressive hand of Rome upon Israel, maybe God will deliver them again. So, they're not just remembering an event of the past and celebrating the might of God in Egypt. I think there is a sense of hoping that God will do it again, that God will free them again. And in fact, there is a group called the Zealots, and the Zealots are not wanting to wait for God. The Zealots were the rebels. They wanted, to, uh, they wanted to stop Rome. They wanted to overthrow Rome. They wanted to throw Rome out of Israel by the power of the sword. And they're in the multitude also. Waiting for a chance to incite rebellion. To incite war against the Romans. The Celts don't want to wait for God. They want to take it on their own hand. And all of this is happening in Jerusalem, externally and internally. All of this emotion, all of this hope, all of this going on, all of these worries, all of these celebrations. And, and there is is a prophecy A man named Zechariah had prophesied, was one of the late prophets, the prophets, the post-exilic prophets, that looked to the day that the Messiah would come. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, there is this prophecy that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That, that's a mention of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey. A cold, the fall of a donkey. This is a prophetic word from God to his people that there will be a deliverer in God's time, but he would not be a deliverer that would come in a white stallion of a conqueror, but would come differently. Something that the people could not comprehend how someone riding on a donkey, just and humble, is going to overthrow Rome. just doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't make sense for us that God is going to take care of ISIS in a manner that is not going to incur war and planes and bombs. Most of us would want to just have all the countries bomb ISIS out of existence. But that's not maybe how God wanted to do things. But their expectations were different. That's what Zechariah had promised, because a prophecy from God is a promise from God in God's own time. If God prophesies something or causes a prophet to speak in his name, you can count your bottom dollar that God will make it happen. His word will never come back empty. So a prophecy from God is a promise from God. And you have God prophesying through Zechariah that the king is coming, but he's going to be a different king. But no wonder when they see Jesus riding through the city of Jerusalem, perhaps the main city of Jerusalem toward the temple, riding on a donkey, and people waving branches and calling him the king, you can imagine how the whole city remembered this prophecy. And how it heightened the emotion. And it heightened the expectations. And it heightened the whole atmosphere and the move, mood of the city. And people get caught up, caught up like a mob. A mob being caught up into the emotion of the moment. And the waving of branches and the putting of garments and the singing of the Hallel and king come and calling him, uh, you know, the, the king, the son of David. All of these things are coming out of the people. I'm not sure they fully understood who Jesus was. Or who the Messiah was. But they had their own expectations. Of what it should be like. Jesus on the other hand. Just just think about it for a moment. The people are caught up on this. Jesus is riding into the city. On a donkey. Fully knowing who he was. And in a way, Jesus was submitting himself. Submitting himself to his father. Surrendering his life to the will of his father to fulfill the prophecy that the king would come riding on a donkey, but that that king in Isaiah 53 was going to die. Jesus was submitting himself not just to the entrance of the king but to the ultimate killing of the king. Jesus was coming riding on this donkey fully comprehending that he wasn't the king they expected and that in just a few days they would turn against him. Jesus comes, submitted himself, surrendering himself to be used for the purposes of the people. You know? Surrendering himself so that the people could use him in the way they wanted to use him, and they were expecting things from him that he wasn't going to fulfill. He was going to fulfill something different. He was allowing them to use him for their own heightened purposes. And I can imagine him entering the city, watching all these people excited, and in his heart, he knows that he's not the conquering king they expect, that he's the Lamb of God being taken to the slaughter. That he's the Lamb of God that is being led to the slaughter. And he knows it. And he allows it. And he permits it to be. And people are excited. And people are looking to him. And I don't know what was in their minds, but I imagine in his mind, there is a sense of if you only knew What's going to happen in a few days? If you only knew that, that you call me king today, but in a few days the cry is going to be crucify him, crucify him. There would be a rejection. And yet he's allowing himself. He's allowing himself for the moment. He's allowing himself to be used. And he's fulfilling his father's prophetic word. And he's ultimately going to fulfill his father's will. Because he was the only way. He was acknowledging. You see, there was a time in Jesus' life, after he fed the multitudes up in Galilee, that they wanted to make him king, Remember? You you guys remember a group of people got so excited when they saw Jesus feed over 5,000 people, you know, over 5,000 men. And they wanted to take him and make him king and Jesus escaped because he he didn't want to be king. But this time he's allowing, he's allowing them to see him as the king. He's allowing that he is the Messiah King that God had prophesied. This time he wasn't going to run away or escape from being called king and being crowned. This time he's fully embracing that the Messiah King of Israel was coming and he had come to die. And the question, well, I, I said to you that I was going to talk a little bit about the word Hosanna. I, I said that the Hallel Psalms are from 113 to 118. As they enter into the city of Jerusalem, they're toward the end of the Hallels. If they started singing Psalm 113, as he's coming through the city, they're coming to Psalm 118, verse 25. And Psalm 118, verse 25 says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. All give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his mercy endures forever. That's toward the end of Psalm 118, and the people are singing this as they're bringing Jesus in. That word, Hosanna, is, is the word, save now. Save now, for us in English, is the word Hosanna. Originally, the word Hosanna was a cry in time of crisis. Save us, God! Do something, God! Hosanna! Send a rescuer, God! Send a deliverer, God! We are in trouble. We need you. Hosanna! Hosanna! Help! 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 That's how we would do it. Their cry was Hosanna. Originally, the word Hosanna was a cry for help, a cry for deliverance, a cry for someone to help them in their struggle, a cry for for someone to help. Eventually, it became a word that looked to an individual. It, It was a word of rejoicing, knowing that it was the king that God would send that would be the deliverer. So when they say, Hosanna, and they're singing it to Jesus, and they're saying, Hosanna to the king, the son of David, who's coming in the name of the Lord, they're looking to him to be the deliverer, to be the one that helps them, to be the rescuer of the problems that they find themselves in. The word Hosanna is that cry, that look to Jesus to be the deliverer. And indeed, he is the deliverer, but not By war, he's a deliverer that comes to take away the sins of the world. So when they cry Hosanna, they're crying with the hope that Jesus would be that deliverer of God. Now the question that I have for you today to ponder and to consider. Do you have a king in your life? Is Jesus your king? We can call Jesus king all we want. We can sing Hosannas to Jesus. We can say he's the Messiah. We can say that he's our savior. We can say that he's our Lord. But is he really your Lord and really your king? Or you're just going through the motions like the multitude on the day of the triumphal entry. What happens when you have to make a decision? Do you check it with Jesus first? What happens in your relationship with your partner? What happens between your husband and your wife when you have to make family decisions? Do you make decisions independent of Jesus? Or do you say, Lord, what is the direction that you would want me to go? Because what happens is that many of us at times on Sundays we call Jesus king. He is my Lord and we lift our hands and the rest of the week we're making decisions as if we don't have a king. Like we don't have a king, like Jesus doesn't have a word for us. The question that I have to ask myself and I ask you to consider is if Jesus is indeed your king today and every day forever does he sit at the throne of your heart or do you at time ask him to move aside so that your will be done so that your decision is made the way you want it and you say Jesus excuse me but I need you to move out because I need to sit there first I'll bring you back later Lord when it's convenient to me Do you ask yourself, when you have to make decisions at work, in the family, do you ever ask, is this what God wants? Lord, I want to be obedient, even if it's sacrificial. I want to be obedient. Because obedience at times requires the sacrifice that comes with obedience. Obedience is not always nice and pretty. It doesn't always says God is going to see everything through. Yes, he will, but sometimes there will be sacrifice through that going through. Do you ever ask yourself, how would Jesus handle this situation? How would Jesus speak to that person? How would Jesus repent or or forgive someone? How does Jesus want me to handle a situation or an event? If he is the king of kings in my heart, in my home, in my business, in all that I do, I need to ask myself, am I glorifying God the way that I'm living my life? Or are we just caught up on the emotion of being called Christian? Do you have a king, a real king, your general, your CEO above all CEOs? Is he your commander in chief? Is he your God? Are you obedient to him and do you submit to his will, even if it costs you? I think the danger is that we can get caught up in the day and the liturgy and the palms and all of that and then leave it all here on Sunday mornings and go to where we are kings. And I want you to consider whether your faith is 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 the masses' faith Or is it a personal relationship that changes you? Is it the kind of relationship that even if it costs you, you will say, Lord, your will be done. I will sacrifice so that you may be glorified. Do you have a king? Is Jesus your king? your Lord, your Savior, your Captain. Is Jesus your King, or are you just going through the motions? I just want you to consider that, to understand what's happening as Jesus comes in, but also to bring it home to ourselves.